Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report. I'm Brian Cardile. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering all manner of salient appellate and constitutional law questions. This week, Congress questioned representatives from Silicon Valley's tech titans, Facebook, Google, and Twitter, about the targeted and divisive misinformation spread by foreign actors during the last presidential election. Senators from both political parties exhorted the companies to do more to prevent such deliberate manipulation orchestrated from overseas. But stern reprimands may not be the only response issued from Capitol Hill. A bipartisan Senate bill titled the Honest Ads Act has been introduced as a means of forcing greater transparency in the context of online political advertising. It would require platforms to identify the source of political ads and to keep the ads and their source information on public file. Proponents contend the act simply places the internet on equal regulatory terrain with traditional media like broadcast or cable television where ads reliably identify their sources. But others, including Eric Wang, a senior fellow with the Institute for Free Speech, argues that the act would be an impermissible impingement of constitutionally protected political speech and, though conceived to target foreign bad actors, would primarily constrain and chill American speakers. We'll hear from Mr. Wang shortly, but first, let's get to our opening brief. Next week, the California Supreme Court will meet in Sacramento for its latest round of oral arguments. The panel will be joined by a handful of pro-tempore judges filling in for the recently retired Justice Wardegar. It will consider several salient questions, one involving unnamed class members' rights to appeal in class action cases. Another invokes federal preemption questions in the context of California's unfair competition law. And another case presents the state's high court with an issue of first impression, critical to the home builders and homeowners in California. That question is just what is the reach of the 2003 Right to Repair Act? The law purports to require homeowners to allow builders an opportunity to remedy defects before any litigation is brought seeking damages over the construction imperfections. But a court of appeal ruling from a few years ago seemed to somewhat vitiate the statute holding that the law's pre-litigation requirements did not apply to common law claims like negligence that arose out of construction defects. In McMillan Albany v. Superior Court, which is the case up for argument, the 5th District Court of Appeal held just the opposite, setting up a split of authority and prompting Supreme Court review. Here with more on the case and to preview the arguments is Dave Frankenberger of Erickson Arbuthnot in Fresno. Dave, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. I appreciate it, Brian. Before we get into the the case before the the California Supreme Court kind of grappling with the contours of this 2003 law, the Right to Repair Act, maybe we could start talking about what that act is. Uh, its its name sounds pretty indicative of of its contents. Um, I understand it both kind of prescribes some certain causes of action that could arise from a construction defect type circumstances, um, but also requires some, some pre-litigation procedures that, that folks must must go through, sort of the, the right to repair, uh, before a suit can be filed. Is that kind of the lay of the land? Uh, yeah, you're, you're right about that. I mean, it's the California Right to Repair Act. Um, it's a codified at Civil Code Section uh, 895. But, uh, you know, basically what it is, it's a, the intent of it originally back in, well, 2003 when it became effective, um, was to afford homeowners the opportunity to cure or fix any construction defects um, prior to uh, getting themselves involved in prolonged or protracted litigation. Um, and I think it was also kind of secondarily designed, but the legislative intent was essentially to cut down the number of uh, construction defect lawsuits filed in California. And, and part and parcel of that, I think that would be to keep the uh, court's uh, dockets clean of these cases as much as possible, but also to... Uh, to provide as kind of as a, as a benefit to consumers, where consumers could get a quick and easy and swift resolution to their uh, their problems with their homes, rather than have to wait two, three, five, sometimes five or six years to get resolution through the court system. Okay, now one question that seems to have kind of eluded 
definite resolution till now is kind of just the the reach of the right to repair act um so i understand the question presented here then is um if those pre-suit those pre-litigation procedures um kind of must be gone through must be allowed for either just in the context of, of, of the causes of action that are sort of statutorily prescribed the ones contained in in that bill or the, that that act, or whether sort of all causes of action that arise from defects, including you know the common law ones, negligence or any strict liability claims, um, if they also sort of trigger the the right to repair, is that the the question here? That, that essentially is. I mean, to uh, understand that fully, you kind of have to know the, the history of it a little bit. And go back to 2000. There was a case called uh, Oz, um, sometimes called Oz, but it's A A S. Uh, case basically uh, said that in order to have a viable um, you know, common law type cause of action for construction defect in California, you had to have, um, a lot of people call it resultant, but resulting damage. So in other words, you can't actually recover for, let's say you're a, you're a plaintiff and you have a home, make it a simple single home case, and uh, you have a problem with your, your roof and it wasn't constructed properly, you know, turning into a, a hole in the roof. Um, but basically under us, it says that you don't actually have a viable cause of action until that, you know, that hole in the roof results in some damage to some other part of the home. So you have to have that hole develop and then, then have a rainstorm and have it affect the floor below or the attic space, et cetera. Um, and then without that, you don't have a cause of action. It's kind of, so that's sort of the, the non-statutory cause of action, the common law kind of construction defect cause of action in California. Then you have the, the statutory version uh, under SB 800, and there's been quite a bit of dispute between the, uh, the plaintiff side and the defense side since 2003 as to whether SB 800 actually provides a standalone cause of action. Um, you know, it's the defense position, generally speaking, that you have, um, I mean, it basically it's a pre-litigation procedure and that's all that it is. But what I've seen over the past uh, 10, 12 years is essentially that plaintiff attorneys more and more actually list that as their cause of action will be for negligence, they'll be for strict product liability, be for breach of contract, breach of warranty, and then they'll also have um, SB 800, uh, you know, cause of action or causes of action under Civil Code Section uh, 895 and 896. Um, you know, in the defense side, we basically say, look, that's not a standalone cause of action. And your only cause of action is what was provided under, under, uh, Oz, essentially, back in 2000. So, there's a big issue on that, but essentially that's what gets us to where we are now, that you have a, uh, a problem where you have, uh, you know, most, well, let's take the typical cause of action now, or the typical complaint now, uh, homeowners attorneys will put in SB 800 as a cause of action. So then the question is, in order to, to do that, you actually have to comply with the pre-litigation procedures. I think it's relatively clear that you would have to if you're going to pursue that as a cause of action for that cause of action. Okay, then you have plaintiff attorneys who don't want to uh, uh, comply with that because, quite frankly, it doesn't do them any good to do it. And, um, you know, to me, I'll kind of backing this up, too. I mean, I think it's – look at the intent of this here, too. So if you're a plaintiff attorney, you get a uh, series of homeowners gathered up and they have problems with their roofs and their – uh, the plumbing, et cetera, et cetera, you could try to get the homes repaired, and this is going to be my sort of uh, cynical defense side. If you're a plaintiff attorney, what you really want to do is you want to take those cases under a uh, contingency fee agreement, 33%, 40%. You want to proceed that under litigation. Um, otherwise, you're going under SB 800. You know, certainly you want to help your clients, but you're not helping your bottom line to uh, go through SB 800, with, which, you know, a couple-month process, you're billing that out at $300 an hour. You're not making a lot of money on it. So looking with that is kind of the intent of the, the plaintiff bar, in my opinion. Um, you know, one way around, so okay, we don't want to we don't want to mess around with SB 800. So how do we do that? Well, we just don't list it as a cause of action, 
And then the only cause of action we have in there are for breach of contract, strict uh, product liability, um, um, negligence, essentially. You do that, then the argument is essentially, well, I'm not making SB 800 part of my complaint, therefore I didn't need to comply with the pre-litigation procedures. And that seems to be the way things have been going the last five, six years. Right. And, and there has been a court of appeal in California that sort of uh, granted its stamp of imprimatur to to that uh, argument, to that approach that causes of action like negligence that aren't stri- sort of strictly under SB 800 um, don't need to comply with SB 800's pre-litigation procedures, right? That was the case of Liberty Mutual versus Brookfield? Yeah, that was a 2013 case, and that one came as a bit of a surprise to uh, all of us involved in this, but um, you know, I think it was kind of a, a welcome decision by both the plaintiff's side and the defense side, quite frankly. I kind of took the teeth out of SB 800 and essentially said what I was trying to explain a moment ago, which is that it, there's an option if you're on the plaintiff or the homeowner side. Essentially, do you want to comply with SB 800 and give the other side a chance to repair these homes, or do you want to proceed right into litigation? Um, and how do you get right into litigation? Just don't make SB 800 a part of your complaint. Go strictly under what I'm calling the OS cause of actions, um, the negligence, the breach of contract, etc. And the Liberty Mutual Court, um, this is a... A decision came out of Riverside. Basically, said, "Look, that's exactly it. You're you're the homeowner. You're the uh, sort of the captain of the ship, and you get to decide how you want to proceed: repair your home or go into litigation." And uh, essentially, what would happen after that is nobody would comply with SB 800, and everything would go into litigation. Not to sort of quibble with the, the legal grounding of that ruling, just sort of uh, maybe as a policy matter, that it seems to kind of run counter to what I imagine the. Um, spirit of that that act was that construction defects, um, you know, could be potentially f- fairly minor in, in the scope of um, you know entire house or development being built. It might be good if those sorts of problems could be dealt with without courts needing to get involved um, by having these right to repair the pre-litigation procedures. Um, so if Notwithstanding that, folks could just bring negligence claims instead, um, kind of running an end around, uh, end around around those uh, pre-litigation procedures. Um, does that kind of gut the the right to repair act? Is there much left of it um, with that Liberty Mutual ruling? I mean, in my opinion, not at all. Um, if Liberty Mutual is the only case we had out there, I think that they would effect, there would effectively be no right to repair act. They would sit there on the books at uh, Civil Code Section eight ninety five. But no one would follow it, um, and quite you know, really we've seen that anyway. I mean, really the, since 2003, it's on both sides, the plaintiff side and defense side. Largely, what you've seen is people looking for ends around and exceptions uh, to the right to repair act. And I think partially, partially that's true. I'll give kind of two main reasons here. The uh, the statute got quite watered down from what it originally I think was intended to be. Um, you know, you had a lot of lobbyists both for the Association of Defense Counsel, DRI on the defense side. And you had the consumer attorneys arguing differently, and the, con- the plaintiff homeowner attorneys in particular did a great job of kind of taking some of the teeth out of SB 800 anyway. Um, you know, the, the essentially made it like very difficult on the defense to comply with that. You have 14 days to respond initially to the, the allegations under SB 800. You know, you have these mediation processes, and everything is a real quick turnaround, and you can fall out of SB 800 really, really quickly. Um, you know, but but then again, why do you have the statute on the books if there is a case like Liberty Mutual which says you don't have to comply with the statute? And I mean, so that's where the main problem really lies. Well, what is SB 800 then? If all you have to do is not list um, SB 800 or Civil Code Section 895 in your complaint, 
then you never have to comply with that statute anyway. So not only did it take the teeth out of it, I think it completely gutted the statute, um, Liberty Mutual, that is. Okay, about then the case that will be at issue before the California Supreme Court sort of seemed to do the opposite, kind of uh, vindicating the Right to Repair Act. Um, tell me a bit about the case and, and about the, the Fifth District Court of Appeals uh, holding here. Uh, yeah, so um, Albany McMillan v. Superior Court is really the case we have here. And Albany McMillan is the uh, is the developer, the general contractor. Uh, this is a, a case that involved 37 different homes uh, brought by well, what 37 different sets of homeowners. Uh, you know, there was a first complaint, a first amended complaint um, that was filed against Albany McMillan by those 37 homeowners, and alleged things like you know, as you would expect, strict product liability, negligence breach of express and applied warranties. Um, and the plaintiffs also alleged that there was uh, you know, damage to their home uh, under SB 800, uh, specifically Civil Code Section uh, 896 of the Right to Repair Act. So they had the situation in Albany McMillan where you have kind of the OS causes of action, um, you know, kind of the, the common law cause of action, and then additionally they were alleging SB 800 as a separate and standalone cause of action. Uh, so what happens here is at the trial court level here in Fresno, uh, there's a request from the uh, the developer side. You know, upon getting the complaint, they're served, and they say, well, what do we do with this? Well, look, here we have a cause of action for SB 800, but we have no pre-litigation procedures being followed. Um, so they request at the trial court level a stay um, and, a, and an order from the trial court that the plaintiff homeowners comply with SB 800 first before this the litigation picks up again. Um, and maybe, in, in theory at least, uh, maybe SB 800 would resolve all the problems of these 37 homeowners and the litigation would, would never go anywhere. Um, and so at the trial court level, what happens there is basically the court says, no, I don't think so. Basically kind of a liberty mutual kind of uh, process. And I think, in fact, that I think the court had that case in front of it and said, look, that's uh, liberty mutual. They have an option. And the option here was that they don't have to comply with the statute. So I found it to be even more interesting because they specifically listed SB 800 as a cause of action, yet the court in Fresno said, look, you don't have to comply with that anyway. Um, so that's taken up on a writ um, to the 5th District uh, Court of Appeals. The 5th District says quite the opposite. Counter to uh, Liberty Mutual it says, look, and actually the, the ruling is quite limited at the 5th uh, the level. Basically says, look, the only question before the court was whether or not a stay should have been granted and with an order to comply with SB 800. And so that's the question, and the 5th District says, look, because there's an SB 800 claim or cause of action, that yes, absolutely, they must comply with that. So it was the case was then, you know, the, the intent was essentially to remand it back to the Superior Court and to have the Superior Court enter a stay. Uh, instead, it goes up to the California Supreme Court um, in 2000 and, well, late 2015, and ultimately it was uh, certified by the California Supreme Court in January of 2016, Essentially, to determine um, have where to go with this, when you have a case, Liberty Mutual, it says one thing, and essentially you have Albany McMillan that says just the opposite. Just to be clear, the the McMillan Albany uh, Court, the appellate court, the Fifth District Court of Appeal, um, it says that the state should have been granted because there was that statutory claim originally, or is it saying that um, that for any cause of action, be it a common law cause of action or statutory? Cause of action arising from a defect um, that should always trigger the pre-litigation procedures of the Right to Repair yeah, Act. Didn't it? I mean that that's a great question. And the way it actually, I, I the way I read Albany McMillan from the Fifth is it actually does go a step further. I mean I think it, because SB 800 is being listed as a cause of action or a claim, it should be complied with. But I think the court actually said further that 
even if that hadn't been the situation, you don't have that standalone cause of action, that all construction defect cases in California should comply with the statute. Otherwise, why do you have the statute? Um, and I, I get that. I get that, and I actually agree with that in terms of what the fifth did there. I mean, if the statute's on the book and make all of our complaints about whether it's an effective statute, whether it's clear. Heck, you even have a problem there too. If you comply with the statute and you're on the builder side, you repair somebody's home, you don't get a release from that. Um, in fact, that's like, why would you actually do that? And we're going to spend all sorts of time and and uh, materials trying to fix these homes, and then you know the homeowner would say two years later, well, that didn't really fix it, or your repairs actually caused more damage to something else, and I'm going to file suit again. I know it kind of went off on a tangent there a bit, but um, you know I think the statute's there. I mean, it should be complied with. It's it seems relatively clear to me, although it doesn't say in SB 800 um, specifically that in all construction defect cases you must comply with the statute before you file your complaint. It's not that specific. Um, but uh, to me, why else is it there if that's not the intent? And it, it is the intent. You read, go back and read the uh, the legislative intent uh, pieces on this uh, piece of litigation in 2002. And what it does say is like, look, we're trying to basically cut down on the number of these lawsuits that are filed and give homeowners a, a quick and swift remedy to fix their problems rather than have this always be a big battle in court. Sure. I imagine the fifth district must have thought it was very important to try and vindicate that legislative purpose because in, in this case, there was a bit of a mootness question. Hadn't the party sort of agreed that they would remedy their 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 disputes outside of court, that they would go ahead and stay the, the litigation and, and deal um, with each other in a non-judicial form, try and, try and hammer out the, the, the details outside of court? Yeah, I mean, I, it's certainly, I mean, I think that what the fifth did was really going out on a limb. It's almost like they were they saw the opportunity to, uh, to pick a fight or to, to jump into the fight, and it did, in fact, uh, you know, take that fight uh, basically to the mat with the the second uh, appellate district down in Riverside. Um, and you have basically, like, essentially, I think what it boils down to in, in summary here is you, if you want to, you could look for little exceptions, and there's little uh, innuendos in both uh, decisions, Albany Mellon and uh, Liberty Mutual. But essentially, you have Liberty Mutual on the left hand saying, look, this is something that is, you can be completely ignored. On the other hand, the fifth is essentially saying that I think that for any construction defect case, um, it cannot be ignored. It's there for a reason and that you must, uh, you know, comply with the pre-litigation uh, procedures before, before you file your complaint. Um, and if you don't, then your case is going to be stayed and you're going to have to comply with it then. You generally will, will find yourself on the defense side of cases like this, but if you could, I, um, like you to maybe present for me the, the strongest arguments that, that you see that could be brought to bear before the California Supreme Court by both the, uh, the plaintiff and, and defense sides here. And then from your experience in, in this area of law, do you have any sense of how the California Supreme Court might be more or less sympathetic to, to those sorts of arguments? Yeah, so essentially kind of taking both sides of a defense here and who's arguing what. Uh, but you have the defense side, and it's interesting to me too. I mean, in defense, I, I will admit, readily admit, that we kind of talked out of both sides of our mouth on this issue. On the one hand, you have SB 800. It's a uh, it's a great defense for us, essentially. You know, you didn't comply with it. Kind of very similar to what happened in Albany McMillan. We go to the plaintiff attorney and say, look, you can't proceed with your your action. You must comply with this. Of course, we ultimately know, however, that the uh, that the uh, you know it's going to fall out of the process somehow, some way. If the parties don't really want their homes repaired, what they're looking for is uh, money, meaning the homeowners. Um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to get around uh, the process. But be that as it may, on the defense side, where the, the kind of the, the official position is, look, you have a statute in place, 
you have to comply with it, comply with it. And secondarily, which is another issue that I, we've kind of been sort of uh, working our way around here, the other defense position is that that the Right to Repair Act was never intended to supply plaintiff homeowners with a separate cause of action. There's all sorts of different, uh, you know, things you can't have, uh, use this type of pipe. You can't have this kind of a, you know, defect. You know, you can't have a crack that's more than a quarter of an inch. But it says things too, like for a concrete crack, it says concrete cracks cannot be excessive. Well, what does that mean? Um, it's not specific enough anyway, really, to kind of provide sort of a, like, strict liability standards. Um, uh, or negligence per se standards, quite frankly, is what that would be. Um, so what you basically have here on the defense side is, on the one hand, we're, we're using SB 800 as a little bit of a, a shield, saying, look, you must comply with it. But quite frankly, we don't like SB 800. It's not clear to us. Um, it can be certainly used against our clients. Um, and some of those standards are pretty favorable in SB 800 for the plaintiff side. I'll give you kind of an example, too. I had a case where I was representing in a Fresno County case, as a matter of fact, 74, uh, we're defending against 74 different homeowners who had filed a uh, complaint against my general contractor. Um, and we got it to the point, this case dragged on, went past the five-year statute, we're in year six, and we finally got to, uh, there were, you know, agreements to go past the five years, very typical in construction cases too, by the way. But we, uh, um, ended up going in, into expert depositions, which happens so rarely in these cases, they typically get resolved through the mediation process eventually. But uh, so what the plaintiff expert did is he took SB 800 for each and every one of the, the different trades um, and tried to utilize that as the standard. Well, the standard is blank, blank, blank. Well, I think that was violated by your contractor. And, okay, of course, I'd ask the questions like, how is that? What do you base that upon, et cetera? But going through that process and sitting in that room through that, oh, this SB 800 stuff is really dangerous for the defense side. These are We don't like to have you know things be specified. Excessive, we could work with on defense. When you actually tell us something can't be more than a quarter inch or an eighth of an inch, and it is, in fact, that, then how do you actually defend that? Um, so I don't, kind of going around the question quite a bit, but, I mean, in my mind, the defense is looking here to have it, um, you know, basically stay in place, you know, essentially fitting with what Albany McMillan did. And the, the plaintiff or the consumer attorney side is uh, with the Liberty Mutual camp, which is, look, this should be an option for our clients. If they want to comply with SB 800 or attempt to, they should be allowed to. Secondarily, if we want to put it in our complaint as a standalone cause of action, we should be able to do that. On the other hand, the plaintiff side will say, look, if I don't want to do that and I just want to get right into litigation, you know, roll up my sleeves and try to get this case resolved that way, we should have that option too and proceed with the, I keep calling it the OS cause of actions, but basically the negligence, strict liability, breach of warranty, breach of contract, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's kind of where you have it. I mean, how do I actually think, uh, where I think the outcome will be? I mean, to me, it's like ultimately you have a statute. Um, the legislative intent does come seem to read that it needs to be complied with before the case is filed. Um, problem is, it's not the greatest, you know, best written statute. I think for the limited purposes of what before is before the Supreme Court. If I was a betting man, and I sometimes am, I would actually bet that the uh, it's going that the Liberty Mutual Camp is going to lose out on this one. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll have a opportunity to find out soon enough if the case is up for argument on Tuesday in Sacramento, uh, but we'll leave it there for now. Dave Frankenberger from Erickson Arbuthnot in Fresno. Thanks so much for being on the podcast to chat. Right. I appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. As Congress grapples with just what sort of regulations it ought to issue, 
in the wake of a 2016 presidential campaign in which foreign actors used U.S. social media platforms to disseminate divisive and manipulative misinformation, attorneys like Eric Wang, a senior fellow with the Institute for Free Speech and a political attorney with the firm Wiley Ryan in Washington, D.C., worry Congress may wield the proverbial sledgehammer to address problems best fixed with a scalpel. Specifically as to the Just Introduced Honest Ads Act, a bipartisan Senate bill, Wang worries the legislation would end up targeting Americans, exercising the core constitutional right of political speech, more than it would address the actions of overseas bad actors. With more on that now is Eric Wang. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. So maybe to start, could I have you lay out the pieces of this proposed legislation, the Honest Ads Act? It seems to me like there's sort of two different parts, um, primarily one requiring greater disclosure of internet advertisements, the sort of thing you might see in a political television ad saying, you know, this uh, online ad brought to you by uh, Muscovites for, for Trump or something. Um, <laughs> and then and then also um, the, the other part seems to be sort of a storage requirement that political ads um, disseminated online would need to be, I guess, organized or sent to some of course, sort of central publicly accessible file to be stored there for a period of time so folks could, I suppose, go and and look at the the content of the ad and then that associated information, sort of the source of the ad. Are those the, do, do I have that right? Is that sort of how the, the legislation would work? Yeah, um, I think there's actually, I, I see three main components that all of which generally address this issue of reporting or uh, publicity of online political and issue ads. Uh, and it's important to note at the outset that all of these provisions in the legislation would affect all Americans uh, and would not be limited or even specifically aimed at foreign interests. And the first component of the bill is to undo what the Federal Election Commission calls its Internet exemption. Uh, and this is an agency rule that, broadly speaking, uh, says that online political speech is not regulated unless, uh, to use precise regulatory language, it's in the form of a communication placed for a fee on another person's website. And I think um, that, that's also understood to mean to include uh, ads that are uh, bought on digital platforms like uh, Pandora or Spotify that aren't strictly websites. Uh, but, but the bill would broaden this regulatory standard so that more online po uh, political speech could be subject to regulation by the FEC. Uh, the, the next component of uh, the bill is more specific, uh, and it would broaden the existing uh, disclaimer and reporting requirements uh, for so-called electioneering communications. And under the current law, uh, these are defined as broadcast, cable, and satellite TV and radio ads uh, that refer to a federal candidate within 30 days before a primary or 60 days before a general election in which the referenced candidate is running. And that can also be received by at least 50,000 people in the jurisdiction that the candidate seeks to represent. Uh, so uh, the Honest Ads Act would uh, broaden the regulation of election communications to include ads that also run online, uh, with the notable exception that there would be no targeting requirement at all for online ads. So even an ad that's targeted to 10 people in Alaska, for example, uh, could be regulated if it references a senator in Florida. Uh, and the last major component of uh, F 1989, uh, this bill, uh, would be to expand the so-called public file requirement 
uh, which currently applies to broadcast cable and satellite TV and radio stations. Uh, so under the bill, uh, the larger online websites and platforms uh, that run ads uh, would have to maintain a publicly accessible file uh, for anyone who spends a total of as little as $500 on ads. Uh, and the file would have to maintain a copy of the ad, um, information about how the ad was targeted and when and how many times it was displayed, uh, how much it was charged, and also the contact, uh, the contact information for the sponsor and the names of the uh, sponsors, officers, and directors. Uh, so, so that's sort of a overview of um, what this bill would require. Uh, maybe just unpacking it a, a little bit further when we were talking about um, regulated ads. Um, what what exactly are we talking about? You know, people will f- have first called uh, to mind when think about political advertisements. The the fairly straightforward, you know, maybe television ad where the, the candidate's walking through his neighborhood and it says, you know, hey, you vote vote for this candidate. He'll, he'll do a good job. Um, those weren't really the sorts of ads that seem to kind of be the most bedeviling. Uh, of the ads that were purchased by actors outside of the U.S. during the last election, um, you know, it maybe targeted more uh, issues or sort of political questions and sort of political divides. Tried to, to target those. So, are those kind kind of a issue ads or um, really just uh, sort of communications that that talk about socially salient uh, questions? Or are those the sorts of things that would count as? ads that could be within kind of the universe of, of, the, of communications that could be regulated by, by this act? Yeah, yes and no, I guess. It, it, it's a fairly complex question. Uh, so the first example that you raised, ads that um, are either you know, run by a candidate or that say vote for, vote against, uh, those are ads that uh, campaign finance attorneys call express advocacy ads because they expressly advocate for the election or defeat of uh, a candidate. And, and those are clearly regulated under existing law, and they would also be regulated under this bill. And th- those ads, if they're uh, they're uh, purchased by foreigners, they're already uh, prohibited under the existing law. Uh, and I, I think you're right to say that it seems like it was a very small portion of the ads that are at issue in this Russian meddling. But there were, were some of those ads, and the uh, you know, Department of Justice or the Federal Election Commission could uh, undertake an investigation and prosecute uh, the uh, Internet Research Agency if they could get jurisdiction over that uh, Russian entity and uh, for violating the existing prohibition on express advocacy ads by uh, foreign nationals. Um, the, the other issue ads that uh, talk about uh, social controversial social issues, uh, political issues generally, and that don't mention candidates by name, uh, those would also be subject to regulation to some extent under uh, this legislation, uh, primarily under the public file requirement. That was the last component that I had just discussed. And uh, particularly, the public file uh, requirement would apply not only to ads that um, uh, reference candidates or that advocate for candidates, but also to any issue of national legislative importance. And, and that can include uh, you know, a whole array of uh, issues, um, for example, uh, the pending tax legislation, even the issue of the budget deficit generally, issues about uh, Planned Parenthood, the environment, Social Security, uh, and any of the other types of non-commercial uh, public issues ads that you uh, typically see uh, 
perhaps on the Sunday morning shows, for example, uh, you know, those would probably all be subject to the public file requirement under this legislation. Sure. Okay. Uh, now, one argument I've seen made in, in favor of this sort of legislation is that it really merely puts internet advertising sort of on equal footing, uh, internet political advertising on equal footing with uh, the sorts of advertising done through traditional media like um, television ads. Uh, is that a fair description? And do you think um, that internet advertising is different in such a way that it should be it should not be treated the same as the, the sorts of ads on those traditional media? Uh, well, yes and yes. I, I think that's the, the first part of your question. Um, I, I think that is an accurate uh, characterization of what this bill seeks to do. Uh, and yes, that's the second part of your question. I, I do think uh, it's unfair to uh, treat uh, internet media on the same basis as uh, traditional uh, mass media. Uh, so in that respect, I think the bill's uh, premise is not correct. Uh, and this is sort of getting into uh, the area of communications law as opposed to campaign finance law. Uh, but, you know, generally speaking, broadcast media uh, has been regulated uh, differently over the past several decades under the notion that uh, they're federally licensed by the Federal Communications Commission and they're required to operate in the public interest due to the uh, scarcity of public spectrum over which uh, broadcast signals can be uh, transmitted. Uh, satellite and cable are similarly regulated because they are thought to compete with broadcast media. Uh, but but these, those same regulatory justifications uh, don't apply to the internet and social media. And so lawmakers, I think, shouldn't just automatically assume that the same rules that apply to traditional media would also uh, you know, automatically transfer over to the internet. Uh, I, I think if lawmakers want to have want to more broadly regulate the internet and social media as uh, common carriers and impose on them um, FCC licensing and uh, public interest requirements, uh, th that's something that should be debated explicitly, uh, openly, and honestly. Uh, but it shouldn't be used as a premise just to, to ram through this bill, which just assumes, you know, those two uh, traditional media and Internet media um, can automatically be uh, regulated on the same basis. Um, maybe getting into some, some practical effects of the litigation, you write in an analysis that you, you did for the Institute for Free Speech that um, maybe sort of the brunt of the effects of this litigation would be felt by Americans rather than than foreigners, uh, and particularly, you, you know, one potential um, pitfall in that um, that smaller organizations, maybe grassroots um, groups, like for example, the, the Tea Party from a few years ago, or the Women's March, sort of organic internet started, crowdsourced movements, would potentially be chilled. Would have more problems organizing in the way that they. They had previously. Well, what about the, this this act? What it would cause that problem? Yeah, you know, as we've been discussing, this act primarily imposes uh, reporting requirements and also disclaimer requirements on online political speech, uh, online uh, paid advertising. And while those two concepts may sound simple in theory, uh, in reality, they're they're really not. Um, in my private practice, uh, I advise clients on these issues uh, as a large part of my practice. And, and we spend typically 
you know, an hour or more on each ad, uh, which translates to uh, potentially thousands of dollars in legal bills, uh, just to make sure that we get these requirements uh, correct. Uh, and I also served as counsel to uh, FEC, Federal Election Commission Commissioner, for several years. And we saw many grassroots groups that uh, didn't bother to check with attorneys, and perhaps they didn't uh, have the funds to spend on attorneys. And, and these gr- small grassroots gr- uh, groups uh, would often screw up these uh, requirements, and they would get fined uh, thousands, sometimes even uh, tens of thousands of dollars for late or incomplete reports. Um, So it's the large institutional players that would end up being advantaged by uh, these sorts of requirements because they have expensive attorneys like myself on retainer uh, to help them sort through these requirements, while these small organic or nascent uh, groups like the Women's March or the Tea Party are the ones that end up getting uh, bearing the brunt of these penalties and, and these regulatory requirements. So we're talking about both compliance and liability costs that are added to the right to speak about political candidates and issues. Uh, the public file requirement also uh, may deter American groups uh, that are advocating on these contentious uh, but important political and social issues. Uh, so, for example, uh, causes like Black Lives Matter and the Tea Party uh, that have aroused both uh, passionate supporters and opponents, well, you know, the public file requirement would make it much easier for opponents of these causes uh, to keep tabs on these movements and to retaliate against their organizers. And I, so I think that public file requirement would also have a chilling effect on speech. With with, with the, the first one that you mentioned, sort of the potential liability of violating this act, that um, liability that, that smaller groups wouldn't be able to, to cover, um, are those the sorts of effects they would feel indirectly? Would would not that liability sort of go to the, the, the internet site or the social media platform through which they, they yeah. purchased the ad? That's a good question. Uh, you know, with respect to the public file requirements specifically, the ad uh, makes it clear that liability would fall on both the uh, groups sponsoring the ads as well as the internet platforms. It doesn't uh, allocate the liability speci- uh, precisely, but you know, both sides would have liability under the bill. And then, more bro- generally speaking, um, as I said before, the bill would also expand the pre-existing FEC uh, disclaimer and reporting requirements uh, to online political speech. And as the FEC has uh, uh, you know, implemented those existing requirements, uh, the liability typically falls on the uh, sponsors uh, rather than the advertising platforms. So, so certainly, I, I think um, you know, the brunt of the liability would be uh, borne by the, the speakers and not, uh, you know, to a lesser extent, by the advertising platforms. Um, you, you mentioned a couple of times now the, the brunt of the, the regulations being felt by, by American speakers rather than the, the sorts of foreign speakers that obviously haven't inspired the sorts of le- this sort of legislation. Um, is, is, that, is, is part of that because it would be easier to catch these problems if you cast a wider net? Um, it, that is, it might be difficult to discern whether or not uh, a foreign source is the the, the party paying for an advertisement, and so it's just safer to have disclosure requirements for for all of them. Um, would, would you support this sort of act if it, it only targeted ads that had been paid for by by foreign actors? And is that the sort of thing that would be readily identifiable that uh, ads were supported by by actors overseas? 
Yeah, um, I mean, as to the first part of your question, I think that's certainly the justification that these bills supporters would make is that you have to necessarily cast a very broad net in order to cast the needle in the haystack, I guess. Uh, but, you know, if, if you look at the, if you have to put things in perspective. Uh, you know, the amounts of spending that we're, we're talking about here, based on the accounts of the bill's own legislative findings, as well as um, the statements that its sponsors have made, is that there was about $100,000, perhaps a little bit more than that, that was spent on paid ads uh, dealing with political issues during the 2016 election out of a total of approximately $1.4 billion that was spent on um, paid online political ads. So, so uh, you know, percentage-wise, we're talking a prob- about a problem that's less than one one-hundredth of 1% of the total spending. So, you know, conversely, that necessarily means that 99.99% or more of the uh, paid online advertising that this bill would uh, pertain to uh, w- would regulate as by Americans. And even if you talk about it in terms of the number of uh, impressions or, or views or times that these uh, messages were displayed, uh, you know, we've, we've heard large numbers recently by Facebook that, you know, maybe 12 million people or um, these, these messages were displayed 12 million times. But as Facebook also pointed out, uh, during that same period, as a percentage of the total content that was posted on Facebook, that, am- that amounted to 0.004%. So again, necessarily, you know, the vast, you know, virtually all of the uh, content that would be regulated under this bill would still be by Americans. Um, as your, the second part of your question, you know, I, I think in theory, I would say that the types of measures uh, that would be imposed by this bill would be more defensible if they were actually focused uh, specifically on foreign interests, uh, which is uh, supposedly the justification for this bill. You, you do mention also in your analysis that, that there is existing legislation that that does deal with foreign actors or uh, foreign actors acting through agents to advocate for some political party or, or issue, and, and, and that, that law could be sort of uh, maybe amended just slightly to to do the work that this act is is uh, um, seeking to do. Sorry. Yeah. So so, so th- this is the Foreign Agents Registration Act, which is a law that has been in existence for a number of decades, and it's a law that's uh, gotten some a fair amount of attention recently uh, as a result of the special counsel's indictment of Paul Manafort, and and one of those charges was a FARA uh, uh, violation. Uh, and there's also, I understand, uh, a bill that was just introduced uh, within the past few days in the Senate to amend FARA. But um, I, I don't think, as I understand it, that amendment would uh, address specifically the issues that we've been talking about uh, right now. Uh, and, and so I, I think, you know, just uh, as a baseline, the, the Foreign Agents Registration Act, as its name implies, uh, was it was written, it was a law that was written at a time when uh, foreign uh, foreign nationals or foreign interests could not really do anything directly in the U.S. Uh, in terms of lobbying or propaganda without having an actual agent within the United States. And so the law requires that foreign nationals engaging in such foreign entities engaging in such activities uh, have an agent register and publicly report their lobbying and political propaganda activities to the Department of Justice. 
and, and so this this is this law sort of has has a loophole in it in that in the modern age uh, the Russian Internet Research Agency, for example, uh, could directly purchase uh, social media ads and post uh, social media post on social media using trolls and bots uh, without having an agent. And so, you know, those types of entities would not uh, necessarily be subject to uh, the Foreign Agents Registration Act. So, I think generally speaking, uh, Congress could amend and update uh, FARA. Uh, so that any foreign interests uh, that are uh, directing propaganda at American citizens, uh, even those without using an agent, uh, would still be subject to FARA's uh, registration and reporting uh, requirements. Uh, maybe just a, a couple more. And when one reads U.S. Supreme Court decisions that, that grapple with laws like this, that try to regulate um, electorally related speech, uh, campaign advertisements, campaign finance, um, the court always seems to to have some difficulty in, in, in drawing precisely where the line is between you know, regulatable uh, political advertising and electioneering, and on the other side, just core political speech—the sort of thing that really um, is at the heart of, of being able being an American citizen. Um, is that line drawing in, in, any trickier in in the online context? I mean, obviously, that question will will come up again were this act to, to pass, I'm sure it would be the, the target of litigation. Um, in, in the internet context, is, is there more of a problem trying to figure out where exactly the difference is? Because the medium makes it a little bit muddier, it seems like, whereas on TV, it's pretty clear the ads are coming from uh, this the source. They're, they're being delivered to a viewer online. Um, you know, Maybe things that were originally political ads um, tend to get sort of shared and then they're organically disseminated sort of virally. Um, so it might be difficult to, to tell exactly what, you know, and, and once they're, they're shared, that seems like sort of a, an act of speech by that person. Um, so I, I suppose, is is this line drawing a, a, a bit trickier in, in this context? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with both of the premises that you just stated. Uh, I think for the entire history uh, of the uh, field of campaign finance law, this problem of line drawing has been perplexing uh, both to uh, those who are subject to its regulations and for uh, for judges and for, for legislators. Uh, as the Supreme Court stated in its seminal opinion, uh, Buckley versus Vallejo in 1976, uh, the distinction between issues and candidates will often uh, uh, disappear in practical application, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you can then regulate issue speech uh, on the same basis as uh, objectively clear uh, campaign uh, election advocacy. Uh, and, and we saw this in, in the case of uh, most of the ads that were uh, uh, disseminated by Russian interests. You know, they, they dealt with um, contentious and divisive social and political issues. But those are, you know, perfectly legitimate issues that Americans uh, have discussions about or should have discussions about every day without necessarily being subject to regulation by the Federal Election Commission. So, so it, it, it's a problem um, that's inherent when you're regulating in this area, uh, whether it's online or offline. Uh, and like I said, this has been a problem for uh, for as long as campaign finance law has existed. Uh, and I do agree with you that it's especially a problem on the Internet, uh, online uh, platforms and social media, which have really become, you know, the 21st century uh, proverbial soapbox or public square. Uh, 
the internet, these online platforms are where individuals, uh, activists, or small grassroots movements have uh, greater access to uh, or greater ability to spark a community-wide or a nationwide conversation about important political and social issues. And, and so we should want to protect their ability to do so uh, using the internet. And, and circling back, I guess, to the original point that I made, that's precisely why the uh, Federal Election Commission uh, created its regulatory uh, internet exemption is because uh, the, the FEC recognized that the, FEC, uh, that the internet and social media uh, are, uh, it's particularly difficult to police the line between election advocacy and issue advocacy online. You have been skeptical, but any right in your analysis that um, of the, the regulatory regime that's already in, in place for maybe more traditional tr- traditional media, um, do you think that, that the line drawing is not quite right yet? And, and you also mentioned um, sort of a, a more cynical concern that this could be a sort of a a, a Trojan horse bit of legislation aimed at Russian um, election meddling, but really with the more core intent to um, place uh, more significant burdens on political speech. Um, is that concern countered a bit by the fact that this is um, bi- bipartisan le- legislation with uh, folks on either side of the political spectrum? Yeah, well, I mean, as for the first part of your question, I, I think th- there are concerns that even the existing regulatory regime doesn't strike the right balance. Uh, for example, with the issue of so-called electioneering communications that I uh, talked about before, uh, my group, the Institute for Free Speech, uh, litigated a matter uh, in uh, Colorado involving the um, Independence Institute. Uh, which wanted to uh, run ads uh, asking Coloradans to contact their two U.S. senators about a criminal justice reform bill that was pending in Congress at the time. Uh, but the ads would have run uh, within the uh, 30- or 60-day pre-election time windows, and so they would have been regulated as electioneering communications. And uh, my group challenged uh, the law uh, as applied in that situation, and the court held that you know, his hands were, hands were tied. Congress had mandated that these issue ads about legislation be regulated as uh, under the campaign finance laws. So, so I think there is overbreadth even under the existing uh, law. And like I said before, I think this uh, this bill uh, at 1989 would further exacerbate that uh, problem by uh, applying the existing regulatory regime and expanding it to online speech. Um, as for the second part of your question, I, I do also think that this bill is being a little bit opportunistic. I mean, um, it, it, for example, uh, FEC Commissioner Ann Ravel, uh, on October 24th, 2014, she put out a statement in connection with a uh, FEC enforcement matter dealing with uh, YouTube uh, videos in which she, she said that we needed to uh, repeal the existing internet exam- exemption and Im- impose greater regulation of political speech online. And that was well before, uh, you know, the 2016 election, presidential election got underway. It was well before uh, any of these Russian hijinks uh, came to light or probably had even started occurring. So, so, you know, that effort to regulate the internet had nothing to do, came well before uh, the issue of, of foreign interference. 
uh, and it had nothing to do with foreign interference. Uh, and this bill seems to be just an extension of that uh, long-running effort to impose greater regulation on Internet political speech. And it's just use, being opportunistic in using this issue of uh, Russian meddling uh, to uh, accomplish that pre-existing uh, goal. And, and again, I, I think this is highlighted by the fact that the actual provisions of the bill are, are not at all narrowly targeted at foreign interests. And I think that the fact that there, there is token bipartisan support uh, for this bill in, in terms of who's sponsoring it now, I, I don't think that in any way uh, you know, negates uh, my point. I mean, Senator McCain has been a long-standing uh, supporter of uh, greater campaign finance uh, regulation. Uh, you know, his one of his signature uh, le- legislative accomplishments was the 2002 McCain-Feingold bill, which imposed uh, a lot of these new greater uh, uh, political speech regulations that I, I don't think strike the right balance. So, um, you know, the, the bipartisan support for this bill, the, the nominal bipartisan support also is not in any way indicative of the fact that it is, I think, being a little bit opportunistic here. Okay, maybe just one last one. You, you do write in, in your analysis that were this sort of act passed, um, our country would become a little bit more uh, like Russia. That, that's a fairly dire <laughs> w- uh, warning. Um, is, is that really what... You, you foresee if we if we pass something like this, so we become a slightly less free uh, society. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a qualifier there, like you just said, that it would be a little bit more like Russia. It wouldn't right. obviously we wouldn't become you know run by the Kremlin, but uh, yeah, I, I think that is. Uh, in part, what it, it's hard to describe what the motivations of Vladimir Putin were in in terms of uh, this meddling during the last election, but clearly it seems to have been an effort just to um, you know sow discord in American society and, and to make America weaker. Uh, and I think perhaps a corollary or an outgrowth of that motivation is also to make Americans a little bit less free. And, and so if this bill were to pass, if um, political speech were to become more regulated, I, I think that would weaken the country a little bit to the extent that one of our core strengths is our ability to speak openly and freely about political issues and about our government. And that makes America unique and unlike uh, oppressive regimes like Russia, for example. So, um, you know, I, I don't think it's it's a uh, an overstatement to, to say that this bill is uh, in a little bit, you know, in, in, a, in a little way, just um, anti-democratic. Okay. Well, uh, certainly deliberations will be ongoing in, in Washington, but we'll leave it there for now. Eric Wang, a senior fellow with the Institute for Free Speech. Thanks so much for being on the podcast to uh, unpack this bill for us. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And with that, our show for November 3rd, 2017 is complete. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed it. I'm Brian Cardow. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.